Well, if uh, you haven't been with us before, you're here now, and we are continuing on in our journey during Lent. And as we do so, we are in Matthew 6. We're going to be focusing our efforts here at like the last part of uh, verse 30 all the way to 33 today. Um, as we get going, right, I just need to kind of put some reminders before us so we can kind of get our mindset on what we've been working through, uh, not wholly, but just uh, simplistically, right? right? So, so Lent is this time of renewal. It's a time of repentance. It's a time of returning to God with our whole heart. And as we do that, we're following Jesus again into this wilderness uh, with him. And so it's a place where he was tempted and yet led by the Spirit. And I would imagine if you have been following the Lent guide at all, trying to fast on Fridays, um, or even not this week, as I mentioned uh, last week, but the following week, going to be fasting from social media for a couple of weeks. And all these things, you're probably going to be uh, hit with two things, right? You're led by the Spirit and yet tempted by our enemy. It's the same thing that, again, uh, Aaron prayed before. And here we are again, uh, journeying with Jesus through both of those realities. Um, if you don't know me uh, well, and, and if you do, you probably don't know this about me, that my master's thesis was really about, well, the, the title of it was really boring, uh, Catechesis and the 21st Century Church, uh, which I know all got you very excited. Um, and so, but that was my master's thesis, right? And, and, and I did that because um, I became a believer later on in life, and uh, you might think that like later on, according to statistics, uh, past when they say you will come to faith, and that was uh, when I was almost 21 at A&M. And so when I became a believer, yes, thank you, uh, when I became a believer, it was like eye-opening for me to realize like what are the systems, quote-unquote, that in some ways failed me as I was growing up. Now, of course, God's sovereign in all these things, right? But one of the things that I looked at was the fact that discipleship had changed wholeheartedly in the American church since the 70s. Um, it, it shifted uh, really radically, if not even a little bit before that. But what it birthed was um, discipleship was turned into showing up to a big show, where you got impressed by a big personality, a loud band, and probably some bright lights. That was what discipleship turned into uh, through the, 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 the megachurch boom of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And that's not all a bad thing, but the bad thing is, is that it worked. Is that discipleship, because it was defined on just simply as showing up, as being present, that's an easy thing for us to do. We're doing it here either in person or online. And we're doing it all over the world. And that, I would say, is a really good thing to do. Matter of fact, a commanded thing to do in the Scripture. But it's not the end game. The end game is that we would devote our whole hearts, our whole lives, to following Jesus. That's what we say in our mission statement as a church, inviting all people to follow Jesus in all of life. And we do so as we disciple others and we lead others to do so uh, in increasing measure. Uh, and that's what we're called to do, right, as a church and as a body of believers. So it's not just about showing up. It is about discipleship. It's not discipleship then isn't about simply attending and experiencing something, but it is about living a, a, a whole life dedicated to Jesus. So my research during that time, and it's only gotten uh, more prevalent, is that baptized believers don't look any different than non-baptized people. Baptized believers, though that are really taking their life seriously, right? They're, they're, they're saying to their community of faith that I'm taking this seriously and you hold me accountable. Actually, their, their lives are no different. No different, according to research, than anyone else. 
And it's staggering to me, you see, because if, if all the things that happened in 2020, or with all the things that happened in 2020, sin was not on the decline, right? And probably, in fact, sin was on the incline because we're all isolated and alone. And when we get isolated and alone, what happens? We just, we just are more prone to sin, and no one's watching, no one's looking, no one's holding us accountable. That's, that's the power of community, right? And so sin just, just starts to get birthed more and more. And, and pastors are no different. There were several different um, uh, scandals in 2020, even with coronavirus, right, with, with pastors. And the interesting thing about that is that I came across an article of someone's um, commentary about the church, commentary about the cool church, about the hipster church, about the loud church, about the bright church, and about the big personality church. And that commentary is still eye-opening for me today. I want to read you a little bit about it. But this is a non-believer, and this is their commentary about pastors that pastor that kind of church into coolness, into hipness or hipster-ishness, which is not going to be me, apparently. But this is what the, the, the guy writes. He says this about, about believers as a non-believer. He says, still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it very much looks as if they want me, or they want to become more like me. Kind of fascinating that a non-believer would look at us and go, man, y'all are no different. Y'all actually are really trying hard to look more like me than you ever are trying to win me over to your lifestyle. You see, we're still struggling as baptized believers, as those who want to follow Jesus in all of life in increasing measure to look differently than the world around us. And you might think to yourself, why am I saying all this when we're talking about anxiety? I love what Shauna just prayed because it's in my notes, that the post-COVID church cannot afford to waste the restart that he has given us. We can't afford to waste this. This is an unbelievable opportunity for us to understand that he has pruned some things off of the vine that never, we scotch taped some branches on for a long time and they never produced fruit. We cannot afford to waste this opportunity of a restart in the American church. That we must get about living different lives and being distinctly different than our people around us. No matter where we are, no matter how we're living. And you might think to yourself, okay, so are you like shaming me for struggling with anxiety because I look like everyone else? No. Hear what I'm saying. This is not about not struggling with anxiety. I think we've pretty much... Uh, like nailed this down is that we're all going to struggle with it at some point or another. It is a common human experience, which makes me, which could tempt us to think that Jesus is disconnected when he says, do not be anxious, but he's not. He is careful to provide for us the way to life. And so we continue on in this path and in this journey to say, it's not about not, uh, not struggling with anxiety. Instead, uh, what difference does Jesus make in your fight in your mind, what difference is your faith making truly in the battle for your mind? Because here's the deal. In Romans 12, it says that we would be uh, renewed in our mind. And if God says that over and over and over again, and, and, and next week's sermon is even going to give more detail to that. 
If God says that over and over again about our mind being the place that we're going to battle here, that's what he's talking about. Hey, just logically, look at the birds. Just logically, look at the grass of the field. Logically, like think with your mind about what, how God cares for you. And that's what he's done for the last several weeks and certainly in the Sermon on the Mount. Just look, just, just pay attention to how God cares for all things, much less his treasured possession. He's, he's calling us to use our logic and our mind. And to do so, we have to exercise our faith. So what difference does Jesus make in our fight against being given over to anxiety and obsessed with uncertain circumstances, with those percentages that we're running about worst-case scenarios? What difference is Jesus making? What role does our faith take in this fight? And I would say this. Jesus is going to give us three things to play a significant role in overcoming anxiety in these last or, or almost last few verses of this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. So the first thing that he's going to tell us to pay attention to is the role of faith. The role of faith in overcoming anxiety is right there at the end of verse 30. He says, well, I'll read verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, a.k.a. it's temporary, it only serves a, a, a certain purpose, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now that stings a little bit, doesn't it? It should sting us just a smidge that Jesus would continuously just like rebuke his followers, those like his, his, his boys, his ladies that are following him on a regular basis, he's, he's pretty continuously putting that rebuke ahead of them to say, hey, why did you get so afraid? Where's your faith? Peter, I just told you to come out on the water. Hey, why are you, why are you so afraid? Of course I care that the storm is, is overwhelming the boat. I may have been sleeping, but it was time for a good nap. Why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? And he says it again here, O you of little faith. Now, in the, today's society, that is an abused phrase that we kind of have to speak to and go, okay, we've all been put in situations, or we've all at least heard someone say, well, you don't have that because you haven't exercised your faith. We could all probably, it's like me saying, hey, raise your hand if you think you've prayed enough this week. No one's going to raise their hand. Of course we have a lack of faith. That's part of the journey so it's kind of an abusive uh, phrase that people have hijacked. That's not at all what Jesus is talking about here. Instead, what he is talking about is how have you applied the gospel to this area of your life? So I want you to imagine your life to be a house that needs to be renovated, like real bad. And so you've, you've probably called like Chip and Joanna Gaines, and they're not available. They're in Waco. They don't like Richmond. And so, nonetheless, uh, so they've set up shop there. And so what we need is a true Savior to come in and help our renovated life. And his name is Jesus. And Joanna and Chip ain't got nothing on Jesus the Christ, right? I say that. that maybe that worked a little bit better in my head. I'll make a note. All right. Nonetheless, Jesus has come to renovate our home, and he's given us, this is, I want you to check this out, we're all infatuated with HGTV and whatever else there is, with Chip and Joanne and the Property Brothers, and you probably have four others that you have set on your DVR. Nonetheless, we're infatuated with this, so I just want you to think about this. What if your life is something that needs to be reno renovated like an old house, and Jesus gave you an unlimited budget, and he says, sky's the limit, get to work, I've provided all that you need. And he goes away for a time. And then he comes back and he looks at the entryway of your home and it is immaculate. 
The entryway of your homes has been, has been redone, and it's in whatever cool style is in right now. I don't know what that is, or I would tell you what it is, but I got nothing. But it's whatever style that you love, that's what you've renovated it in, your entryway looks amazing. And then he looks beyond the entryway, and he sees you on your old couch in your old living room. You haven't even touched it, and you're on your phone thinking, man, I nailed this. And he comes in and he goes, what? what? The entryway looks awesome. What about the rest of the house? That's a little bit like the gospel for us in America. We have applied it to the doorway. We've applied it to the entryway of our home, of our faith. We, we've, we've remade the entryway really well. We really know the gospel as it applies to how and that we are saved, to salvation. But we have not applied it to the rest of our home, to the rest of our life. In fact, we've just kind of looked at that peeling wallpaper and gone, we'll get to it one day. But Jesus is calling us, saying, I've provided all you need. I've given you everything that you could ever ask for to remake your whole home. If you just participate with my spirit to remake the entire thing, to put coat after coat of paint, you will never run out. So every nook and cranny, every crevice of your home, will you remake it with the power of the gospel? Will we apply faith to all of life? Well, we simply go, man, like Jesus is good and I know it, but it really doesn't make any difference for the rest of the way of how I live. That's the stinging rebuke of, oh, you of little faith. Will we apply our faith to this situation? How does our faith help us continue through this season? And look, here's the deal. Here's what's at stake. Jesus' answer to this is that if you continue to give yourself to the kind of, quote-unquote, anxiety, right? So this is where we're at, is that the rest of the home is riddled with all sorts of, of traps, mental traps. That we can get into one home and start to get overwhelmed with anxiety. Another one, and we start to get into the darkness of depression. Another room in the house, and all of a sudden it's full of joy and light, but also circumstance. And no matter what it is, we can start to get thrown off. And Jesus is calling us to apply the same thing that we applied to the entryway to the entire home. And he says, if you don't do that, if you somehow lock away some part of our life, of, of our emotions, or our minds, or our work, or our parenting, or our marriage, whatever it may be, then we have a misplaced understanding of faith, that we are not exercising the faith of a follower of Jesus. But he says in verse 32, this is what the Gentiles do. The Gentiles believe like this. They compartmentalize things. They don't apply their faith to all of life. Look at what he says in verse 32. For the Gentiles, look what he says, 31 and 32. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. What is he saying when he says that there's the Gentiles? Well, all throughout the New Testament, matter of fact, if we flipped over to Ephesians 4, this is the, really the most prevalent uh, example of when a New Testament writer compares the life of a follower of Jesus to the life of a Gentile. Now, granted, we're all Gentiles, most of us. Some of us are half Jewish or whatever it may be, but we're, we're, we're from the nations, and so he's not saying that we're inherently evil. What he's saying is that there is a, a lifestyle that doesn't fit with the household of God, and the New Testament writers would call it the way of the Gentiles. And so Jesus is saying the same thing. But if you look over in Ephesians 4, 17 through 22, look what Paul says about the way of the Gentiles. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How do they walk? Oh, they walk in the futility of their minds. Remember the mind being the battleground place. 
They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Look at this, the way of the Gentile. To greedy to, uh, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. You see the contrast here? You see the difference that a life of a believer is supposed to be? Assuming, and he says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. Assuming that you know the gospel as the truth is in Jesus. And what is that truth? Remember this idea of being clothed in, in, in righteousness? So he says this in 22, excuse me, yeah, 22. Put off, take off those old clothes. They don't belong here anymore. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. It's corrupt through deceitful desires. You're going to want things that you think are right, but they're deceitful. So we've got to have the community around us to help us flesh that out. Verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on now, clothe yourself now with this new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And can you see the role of faith here that God is calling us to pursue again and again as a follower, that we put off the old and put on the new, and we would apply that new clothing or that, that fresh coat of paint all over the home that we have in Christ. You see, a good indicator on the dashboard of our life to help us see what's going on below the hood here is, is how often and how easily are we given over to anxiety? How often and how easily without a fight? Or do we get there and we go, man, like, no, Jesus, Jesus is going to take care of me. Our Father in heaven is going to take care of me. You see, the gospel has the power to break the chain of anxiety, to, to, to apply the faith in the one who conquered fear, who controls the storms even though he may be sleeping, so, quote, quote, unquote. For he truly does all these things from the heart of a father. And that's the second role that we have. We have the, the role of faith, and now we have the role of the father. Right there, we already read it. Your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Will you live as though you are still an orphan? still left out to defend for yourself, or will you live in such a way that you are loved by a father who knows every need that you have and will provide according to his plan, according to his timing, according to his character? If you remember that Lent is a time where we're invited to remember our identity, it's also a time when we remember that Jesus was attacked at his core identity. If you are the son of God, that's what Satan says to Jesus three times. If you are the son of God. It's a time for us then to remind ourselves that the enemy will come at our identity in the same way. Except I think he's pretty crafty. He doesn't mention to us, hey, remember, if you are a Christian, X, Y, or Z, I think he just leaves that part out these days. He just wants us to forget that we were ever his kids to begin with. But we are God's children. We are his beloved. We are his treasure. We are his blood-bought children who were purchased, redeemed, sons and daughters who were once yet orphans, and now we are the guests of honor at the wedding banquet. We are both the prodigal son and the older brother that got mad about it all, and we're both at the table, delighted in by our Father, no matter how long we've been running or no matter how unrighteous we have become, we are his. We are delighted in because of Christ Jesus' death on our behalf. 
You see, what Jesus is reminding us of is that the provision for food and drink and clothing, whether it be physical or spiritual, is done in a special way by our Father. He cares for his kids in a way that he does not care for the world. Do you believe that as Christians, or have you leveled out the love of God where he goes, loves all people the same? He does not. He loves us in a special way. That means that when we're brought into the family of God, there's so much more rejoicing than just what the world is even capable of. That when we succeed, there is celebration. When we fail, there's, there's disappointment, but yet still continual love. This last week, um, as you guys know, we're like deep in the thick of baseball and, and, and softball season. And so this last week, something happened on Thursday night. It was a lot of fun. It hadn't happened in a couple of years. And so I'm going to brag on my daughter a little bit, proud dad moment. So she, she gets up to bat first at bat. She leads off for our team, right? Mainly because I make the lineup and I'm biased. So there you go. Um, so she leads off for our team. And, um, and, and, and so she kills one to the outfield. And it goes all the way to the fence and she hits a home run. And I'm waving. I'm coaching third and I'm waving her home. And I can see her rounding second. And she has the brightest smile on her face. Running, she's just so excited and super excited. I'm like, oh, this is so much fun. Come on, man, get going. And so, like, all of a sudden, this is a beautiful moment. And I'm thinking to myself, man, if somebody could just capture this on, like, a picture, this would be great. And then I got a text from someone who took a picture. Look at this picture. Is this great? I love this picture. I love it. It's so much fun. So much to unpack in this picture. Are you ready? We're going to unpack it. Look at this guy on the, on the right. He's excited. He's actually a nice guy. The guy's sitting down. I'm not talking about Noah Stein. I'll get to Noah Stein in a minute. How about the guy sitting down over there? He's excited. Like he's, he's a dad on our team. He's pumped, right? Look at Lily over here. Look at her, her, her mouth. She can't even believe that, that Ellie just did this. Right? She's super excited. And then you got Noah. I've, I've asked for permission, okay? I, I've asked for permission to put this up. I, he goes, man, I look mad in that picture. I was like, why, why are you so disappointed in my daughter's home run? <laughs> Instead, what he told me was, he goes, I was focused on the throw coming home. And I go, dude, I didn't even know they threw it home. You were more concerned about her success than I was. I was just looking at her smile. This is great. Look, you see anybody else in the picture? This is the special love of a parent for her own child. Everybody else is excited. Everybody else is still pumped. But the special love of a parent to a child means you're way more excited when they succeed. You're way a little bit, probably a little bit more disappointed when they fail. It takes, you take it harder or it's a lot easier. But nonetheless, in either way, this is a great picture of the kind of care which our Father in heaven promises us in Matthew 6. It's this kind of special care that he's looking down on us and going, I care for you in a special manner that's not like everybody else. Noah was excited. He was excited about what was going on. That dude over there, I don't know his name, but he was excited. He's on the same team. But there's something special about a parent's love for a child. And a parent's provision for a child, it's, it's different, right? You're still on the same team, but it's, ju it's just different. This is a great picture of how God cares for us in Matthew 6. Our Father knows exactly what we need. And Gentiles may get caught up in worry and obsessing over uncertainty, but Christians... 
Christians trust their Father to provide all that they need. That's the second role. The first role is the role of faith. The second role being the role of the Father. And now we turn the page into the role of first. We go on in verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, the Christian's priority is the pursuit of God's kingdom and righteousness, his righteousness or holiness. So to put this plainly, right, in contrast to the way that non-believers live, followers of Jesus are to put his kingdom and righteousness first. That is his reign and his rule, his words and his ways at the top of our priority list. And we do that by ensuring that he is what is most central in our hearts. So a question as we turn the corner here, what do you love? Who do you love? What do you love the most? Who do you love the most? What do you spend your time scrolling through? What do you spend your time daydreaming about? What do you pursue in your free time? Yes, I know you have free time, although you might say you're busy. You got free time. It's just in there. Work, what are you working for? Is that thing God's kingdom and his righteousness? Is it pursuing a life that is characterized by holiness? By holy living, not just setting apart Jesus as Lord, but also being set apart by Jesus for holiness, for righteousness, and becoming like the Son of God. So you may ask yourself, well, how do I do that? How do I, how do I seek him first? What does that practically look like? I refer back to my early life as a Christian at A&M, right? I got saved at Breakaway at A&M. If you've ever been to Breakaway, it's a really large Bible study. Um, but I got saved there one night, actually October the 12th, 1999. And so over 20 years ago, I got saved in college. And, and, and I would readily be faced with this choice after I got saved and even beforehand. And that choice was, do I get ready for this exam, for this speech, for this midterm, or do I go to Breakaway? And you might think to yourself, that's like not an existential crisis. But as a college student and as a young believer, that was one for me, especially one who worked really hard to almost fail out of A&M his first couple of years. I mean, I was close. I was on SCOPRO, scholastic probation, and it was not good. Um, and so like I got really good grades at the end of my time at A&M, but I still graduated with like barely enough to get into grad school. Let's just say it was in the two ranges, the twos range and not in the threes range of my GPA. But I was readily faced with this decision, will I set aside time for the Lord or will, because I didn't go to church in those days, I didn't know any better, that was quote unquote my church, what will I do? And I got great peace of counsel in my journey. And that counsel was, if you set aside time for Jesus, he will always honor that sacrifice. He will always honor that sacrifice if we set aside time for the Lord. Now that didn't always mean that I did well on those tests, right? It didn't always mean that. It did mean, though, that instead of spending the next 10 hours cramming, I was going to trust the Lord to give me what I needed in about two hours. And you might think to yourself, man, breakaway wasn't eight hours long. What happened? I procrastinated. That's what happened. That's why I was in this predicament to begin with. Right? It's not a formula, but it does illustrate how we can seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. So what do we need to set aside 
so that we can put Jesus first in our priorities, in our hearts. You see, I want to succeed as much as the next guy, but I cannot do that without putting first Jesus and his kingdom. I want a good marriage, but I can't put my marriage first ahead of God's kingdom and his righteousness. If I put his kingdom ahead of my own, then I know my, my marriage will eventually get fixed. I want to manage money well. And I want to get out of debt. And I spend more time thinking about that more than I ever have now in my 40s. I want to manage money well. I want to be wise about it. I want to get out of debt. I want to do all that I can, but also not neglect God's call to be generous. And so as an aside, one has to wonder if they cannot be generous because they have built too many bills to pay, or if they cannot pay their bills because they are not generous. Like, that's seeking God's kingdom first. Where are we in that? I want to have a successful business and an impact on my industry, you may say, but you will never have the impact that God desires if you are not doing so through the lens of God's kingdom coming to earth. You will, you will never be formed into a humble servant if you are not pursuing his kingdom first and then trying to figure out how you can have a successful business and impact the industry. You see, one must wonder, again, if you can never get enough done because you, he, you need to be more efficient or if inefficiency has come because of your neglect of God's word and prayer and seeking God first. You see, a woman who wants to connect with others through Instagram and Facebook, you, you have to kind of wonder it's, if, if there's a co-relationship here between being given over to anxiety, being given over to depression, through comparison and covening and a fear of rejection if you post that thing or that thought. You have to wonder how fasting from such things might reorient your heart to seek first the kingdom. And so we call for that in a week or so. So can you see the role of first? I know you see the role of faith. I, I think you see the role of a father celebrating over you, providing for you in a different way. But can you see the role of first? See, it's not as though all those things are bad. A good marriage is a good thing. Parenting well is a good thing. Successful business, really good. Getting out of debt, managing money, really good. But they're not first. Not first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Becoming holy. A life of whole life discipleship, submitting to the king's reign and rule in our life as he renews us day by day through grace. As we repent and believe, he just gives us all that we need to renovate that house. It's all been given. And so we seek first his kingdom, because if we don't, we will lose both first and second things. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called God and the Dock, um, or it's been published as a book, and in that book, he wrote this, put first things first, and we get second things thrown in. But you put second things first, and we lose both first and second things. Seek first the kingdom of God. So may we be a people who consider the role of faith. May we be a people who apply that faith in every inch of our lives. May we be a people who remember whose we are. We are cared for by an attentive capable, more than capable, and generous Father. And may we be a church who seeks first the kingdom and his righteousness so that we may never find satisfaction in anything else. Lord, help us if we find satisfaction in lesser things. Let us be removed from those things during this season and every season. May we seek first his kingdom. Let's pray together.
Our Father, we are so grateful that you have instructed us through your son Jesus and his teaching that you didn't want to shout this out from heaven through prophets or only prophets. You wanted to come and make this, this teaching available to all people. And so your son Jesus came to earth and preached this sermon probably more times than the disciples could count. They probably looked at each other and they were like, where's he at? Oh, he's at, he's, at the, uh, he's at the anxious part. All right, cool, I got 10 minutes. I'll be right back. You said that so much, Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, that in this time of kind of a repetitive word for our hearts, may we apply it in every nook and cranny of our hearts. That when we don't seek first your kingdom, we're going to be riddled with anxiety. That's basically, that's basically the bottom line. We don't put you first. We will have uh, we will lose all that we're trying to keep by playing these percentages in our heads over and over again. So our Father who is in heaven, remind us. Remind us whose we are. Remind us we have a dad who cares for us, is attentive to our needs, loves us, provides for us. No matter what we've gone through, you weren't absent from that. Somehow you're writing a better story of redemption than what we've settled into. That Adam and Eve, you weren't absent from that fall either. Whatever we've been into, in, you weren't absent from that either. And yet you use that to redeem us through your son Jesus. So I pray, Lord, that we would see you as a caring father. Inviting us into deeper waters, saying, I've provided all you need. You just come and trust me. May we be a people of deep trust, that the world may know that you're worthy of following in Jesus' name. Amen.